Ever wonder how researchers study behaviors like non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, or how advances in technology improve our ability to study behaviors that most often occur when people are engaging in them when no one else is around? After all, inviting someone into a lab to complete self-report measures when they are emotionally regulated and then asking them to remember just how they were feeling days, weeks, or even months ago when they last self-injured may not accurately capture what we're looking for. Fortunately, new technology now enables us to capture data in real time when it is happening in the moment. There are obvious advantages to this, but what about risks and ethical concerns, like the fact that self-injury and even suicidal thoughts or behaviors could occur in the middle of the night when researchers are not actively reviewing every response or data point? To discuss these risks and benefits of real-time monitoring, also known as Ecological Momentary Assessment, or EMA, I am joined today, all the way from Belgium, by Dr. Glenn Keegans. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. My first time ever visiting Europe was in 2015 for the 10th annual IISS conference, which was being held in Heidelberg Castle in Heidelberg, Germany. That's right, a conference in a castle. I made the trek from the U.S. to Europe alone, and when I was eating breakfast at the hotel breakfast bar the morning of the first day of the conference, I was greeted by an enthusiastic young man sitting at a nearby table. He asked if I was there for IISS, and I learned he was studying self-injury as a student in Australia at the time. That young man's name? Mr. Glenn Keekins who is now Dr. Glenn Keekins. He's now a psychologist and research fellow in the Research Group of Clinical Psychology and the Center of Contextual Psychiatry at KU Leuven in Belgium. He earned his master's degree in clinical psychology and statistics from KU Leuven and earned a double degree PhD in psychology and public health from KU Leuven and Curtin University in Australia. Dr. Keekins' research makes use of a range of complementary methodological approaches and is focused on gaining a better understanding of why self-injury thoughts and behaviors emerge and how to timely predict and prevent their occurrence among adolescents and young adults. He's also particularly interested in implementing digital tools to provide patient-centered mental health care and is a member of the Consortium for Research on Self-Injury in Everyday Life established by IISS to build expertise and capacity in a quickly developing area of research. Thank you, Dr. Keekins, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on this podcast as a knowledge speaker and for organizing this, Dr. Westers. Today's a little bit of a unique topic when we're talking a lot more about research. Maybe our listeners haven't heard as much about this, so I think this will be really helpful and important. But I always like to ask people at the beginning of our episodes, how did you become interested in researching self-injury? Yeah, that's a great question. I get often asked. Uh, for me, the interest in non-suicidal self-injury, I guess, started during the final year of my bachelor's in clinical psychology at the time, and this was in my early 20s, I had to choose a study topic for my master's dissertation one year later. And that semester, I was taking a class on clinical assessment of Dr. Laurence Claes, who is really a pioneer in research on the comorbidity or association between uh, eating disordered behaviors and non-suicidal self-injury. And I remember sitting in her class where she, of course, gave examples of these behaviors, being really puzzled and not understanding at first why people would self-injure. And I guess that's a reaction 
a lot of people have when they first come across uh, self-injury. And as a clinical psychology major in particular, I was intrigued by uh, NSSI as a behavior that involves direct injury to one's body, as this is seemingly at odds with, with human's nature to minimize pain and then maximize pleasure. Um, and unfortunately, the following years, I was really lucky to be able to study NSSI more closely during my graduate years. And of course, quickly learned that people can engage in NSSI for all sorts of different reasons or what we psychologists like to call functions with the regulation of, of negative emotions and self-punishment being uh, primary reported functions. And in that first study that I did, and this was back in 2013, we found that about one in four Dutch and Belgian adolescents, and this was in a community sample, so one in four between the age of 12 and 19, reported having self-injured at least once, which to me at the time was really an eye-opener in the sense that I, I was considering applying for a PhD, but really felt that it had to be on a topic that is important and also significant to a lot of young people in their environment. And that also, I guess, warrants more research to get a good understanding on and that need for a better understanding and knowledge of this behavior really hit home to me when I was doing my clinical internship on an emergency psychiatric ward where we saw a lot of patients who, who self-injured. And this was often treated as a suicide attempt or even conceptualized as a symptom of borderline personality disorder or yeah, just seen as a way of attention seeking, which of course we know from research is typically not, or even most often not the case. So yeah, I guess that's a bit the background of how I became initially interested in, in NSSI research, with most of my work to date having focused on, on self-injury uh, among adolescents and emerging adults. I remember when I was in college looking at writing my senior research paper on the topic and just finding very little. Now there seems to be so many studies that are coming out. So what are some common challenges of traditional research approaches, basically, that we've used for the last 20, 30 years, some of the limitations or common challenges of this traditional research approach when researching self-injury? Well, I think, as you just mentioned, a lot of important work has already happened in the last two, two decades. Uh, so, for instance, we now know that NSSI does not occur only among among females or in the context of a particular uh, disorder and that the peak onset period for this behavior where most people actually uh, self-injure for the first time is in adolescence. So we also now know a lot about the functions and, and, and who is at risk for developing and maintaining self-injury. Of course, that said, no research method is perfect. And I think there are indeed several challenges of the more traditional research approaches that we have been using that we may want to complement uh, with new approaches in the future. So most research studies to date, for instance, still use a cross-sectional design. And this means that people are asked to complete a set of questionnaires or measures at one specific point in time. And while this is really um, yeah, a useful approach to look for clues about important psychological concepts that then may help guide further studies, the drawback here is really that we can't disentangle the temporal relationship between NSSI and then those, those study variables. And as a consequence, based on, on this type of research, don't really know whether those variables then come before the behavior or, or antecedents or come after the behavior or, or then consequence. And having a really good insight into that is really important if you want to help guide prevention efforts. If we then look at the studies that did follow people over time, so what we then uh, as researchers call uh, um, longitudinal research, then we've often used very wide observation periods throughout adolescence and emerging adulthoods of often months to years. 
And that has really helped us understand what risk and protective factors are of longer term risk, so of maybe developmental trajectories, if you will. So who is, for instance, at risk of beginning NSSI uh, or when an adolescent self injures of them maintaining the behavior over time. But it's quite important to realize that such an approach does not tell us at all when then such an adolescent is at high risk to self-injure in the short term in everyday life, which I guess is clinically most relevant as well. And in a way, I, a clinician does not really yeah, care whether uh, someone is at risk in the next two or three years, but wants to know whether the, the client who is sitting right in front of them is at risk to self-injure in the next hours, days and weeks. And then also what contextual influences trigger uh, thoughts and, and behaviors for that person. As psychologists, we've studied NSSI in the lab always in a very controlled environment. However, you could also say that this is not where thoughts, urges and behavior occur. That's that's in everyday life. But studying self-injury in that daily life context was until very recently practically yeah, impossible. Uh, unfortunately, now, uh, very recently with advances in digital technology and also smartphone apps, uh, doing that research really becomes possible and we can now ask people as they are living uh, their life throughout the day multiple times to answer questionnaires on their phone and that of course opens up a new and I would say complementary area of research to perhaps more the uh, traditional survey-based approaches. Traditional approaches, I remember in graduate school, we would just have a paper pencil self-report survey questionnaire asking them to reflect on times when they had self-injured, and that could have been months, weeks, and they might be sitting there in a neutral emotional mood as opposed to when they had self-injured. And so we're actually asking them to think back to how they were feeling weeks ago, months ago, and they might not be as good at capturing how they're feeling. And so now with these new digital tools, technology, you're saying that a lot of participants and people can actually capture real time what their thoughts are, what their feelings are, and report that into a device so that now researchers can see what's going on in that moment rather than weeks ago or weeks into the future. Like you're saying, they want to know like what risks are at play right now and in the near future within the next hours or days or weeks. Yeah, I think that's important that we get a good insight into what triggers the behavior in, in an everyday life context. And, and it's quite difficult, I guess, if we retrospectively ask people which thoughts or, or feelings they had when when that maybe happened, like indeed, as you, as you mentioned, months ago. So yeah, I think that's really the advantage that now we can, by means of digital technology, uh, really uh, measure that in, in, in a daily life context. You just co-authored a position paper for guiding research on self-injury in everyday life titled Opening the Black Box of Daily Life in Non-Suicidal Self-Injury Research. With great opportunity comes great responsibility. Here you talk about real-time monitoring in which we can better capture someone's daily thoughts, feelings, and urges of self-injury, kind of like what we were just talking about. And we know the technical term that we often use when referencing real-time monitoring is ecological momentary assessment or EMA for short. First, how has EMA been used in research not related to self-injury? So different topics, different fields. 
well, maybe it's important to mention that EMA or real-time monitoring or uh, experience sampling, it's often called in Europe, is not a new methodology uh, with first methodological papers dating back from the 70s and 80s. And the method itself originally started as a daily, a daily diary technique in the early studies when people could not or did not have access yet to mobile phones. Researchers asked participants by means of, of diary cards to uh, share their feelings, thoughts, and also the behaviors multiple times throughout the day than in a diary. But of course, this also had limitations because this meant that people still had to then take that diary. Uh, whereas now, as they as they go about in daily life, they're sitting on the bus on, on their way to university or, or they everyone always has their phone with them. So that makes it, of course, quite easy to, to do these type of studies. More broadly, if we look, for instance, at, at depression research, researchers there uh, learned that there is a lot of variability in, in how people are feeling throughout the day for a lot of people and also really look into dynamics of effect for instance i could really see that for people whose effect predicts itself over time so irrespective of what happens throughout the day so who always for instance feel sad that is what they called uh, for instance inertia of negative effect for people where this is really high, so who are really insensitive to the contextual environment, so to speak. Researchers found a risk factor for major, major depressive disorder. Inertia of negative affect. That's a really neat terminology. So going back to your, your position paper, opening the black box of daily life in self-injury research with great opportunity comes great responsibility. How did you come to decide to write this paper? I think that this is really a new, exciting area of research. And together with some other uh, researchers in the field, we felt that there was really need for more conceptual paper in which we uh, summarize uh, what we think are some of the really yeah, exciting opportunities of what we call opening the black box of daily life for NSSI research. But at the same time, we think that this also creates yeah, great responsibility as um, studying self-injury in daily life also brings legal, scientific, ethical responsibility. So we really try to conceptualize those within that position paper. Well, I definitely want to ask a little bit about those ethical concerns that you just referenced, but let's start with the advantages of having real-time monitoring or ecological momentary assessment, EMA. What are some advantages to adapting EMA for researching specifically self-injury? Really a unique opportunity is that we can get a better insight and also understanding of yeah, the course of, of NSSI thoughts, urges and behavior in people's everyday life. With initial studies, for instance, showing that thoughts frequently occur among people who self-injure but are usually uh, short-lived and also of moderate intensity. And recent work also indicates that more intense and persistent thoughts usually occur in the evening, which is when people are also more alone. And we know that this then also increased risk of behavior as well, with studies also indicating that behavior becomes more likely following uh, intense, persistent thoughts. Another advantage, I think, is that we can uh, consider what causes risk for each individual separately. I think in that way, this methodology really brings back the person into research rather than studying different groups, such as, for instance, adolescents with and without a history of, of self-injury to then see what factors increase risk to be in one group compared to the other. Here we can really use each individual's data and then see what increases risk for that particular individual, which could then also allow us to yeah, develop individual or personalized models to detect, hopefully on time, when a person becomes at risk 
to self-injure in everyday uh, life. So, so we can also track then the dynamic processes in the moments that lead up to and also follow uh, self-injury uh, so that we can really get a, get a good understanding of the reinforcing or maintaining properties of the behaviors for that individual. So in, in, in that way, I also think that this methodology offers potential to decrease the research practice gap that is there uh, by allowing really practitioners to consider what causes risk or triggers urges, uh, thoughts and behavior for an individual client while still enabling at the same time researchers or giving them researchers still the opportunity to evaluate then the generalizability of those findings across different individuals. And perhaps most importantly, a real-time monitoring also offers potential for the promotion of person-centered care, which we, I already talked a little bit about. Uh, through repeated observation, it can also enhance awareness and understanding and also challenge uh, people. So for instance, an adolescent who, who when asked in therapy how his or her week has been uh, may say that it was really bad and everything went wrong. However, but then the therapist may, for instance, see that when a person was in a particular situation that week, he or she actually indicated enjoyment in that moment. And then they may talk about that in, in therapy and what made that situation different from the others uh, for the rest of the week. Similarly, um, a therapist may see that a person had a strong urge to self-injure, but then did not act upon that urge, which I think that may also be an important starting point to explore that then further in, in, uh, within therapy. And finally, it, it offers practitioners not only the opportunity to observe, but I think by means of digital technology that we can also hopefully in the future help people and deliver support in, in those moments when, when it is really uh, needed most, uh, when, when people experience an imminent urge to self-injure. I really like the idea of being able to bring it to a clinical practice where therapists can have this knowledge of not just your week was a horrible week overall, but be able to look at the different ups and downs and ecological momentary assessment, the real-time monitoring. It sounds like a lot of apps are doing this already. So when an individual is struggling, they might go on to one of these mental health apps and record their thoughts, their feelings, and use some coping strategy, whether deep breathing, some meditation, other types of mindfulness, or other strategies for coping in that moment. How is this real-time monitoring different from those types of apps that seem to record very similar data? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I think that there are already a lot of apps out there. Some of them will probably be really useful, but if we look at the research, then I think it's really important that, yeah, we also study the efficacy of the apps to make sure that they are really evidence-based. And I know, for instance, that there is an evidence-based app from the UK, which calls the Column Harm app which focuses on principles of dialectical behavior therapy. But overall, I think that most of the apps that are, that are out there now haven't been uh, yeah, tested or evaluated. The methodology may be the same. I think it's really important as researchers that we make sure that we develop apps uh, that are really evidence-based. I think that's uh, yeah, very important. Yeah, and I'm thinking even when I was in graduate school and earlier in my career where I would have individuals track their mood online, like go to a website, track their mood and use different 
data points for how they're doing and bring it into the next appointment. Or I think some allowed the therapist to be able to log in and see how they were doing. I know some of these apps might have similar functions. But yeah, the, even the this real-time monitoring in research, I wonder if that's an opportunity for clinicians. Because earlier you were referencing how a therapist, a clinician might be able to detect and see that maybe an adolescent client was struggling at a certain point, but also had a great high moment, but they just forgot because their mood when they come into the therapy session is much more depressed and low. And then they just say the whole week was horrible. When in reality, you have that data point says, well, there's something great happened on Tuesday day and they may have forgotten that but I'm just kind of wondering where at what point this EMA the research would overlap with the clinical where someone that does therapy like myself could actually use on a day-to-day basis I think real-time monitoring or EMA I think by itself by doing that for instance with a client for a week will I think generate already a lot of useful information for for the therapist just knowing how how the client's week has been, uh, how how he or she functions, I think that already brings a lot of valuable uh, information. I think there are two things that we may need to separate maybe a little bit. I think with what EMA research can, I think, do is really trying to, or what we can do in the field is really trying to uh, see what daily life predictors are for uh, NSSI uh, thoughts, urges, and behaviors so that we are really good at, or hopefully can develop models that are really good at detecting when people are at risk or become at risk in daily life. And then once we are able to do that, I think then, of course, we need also to deliver support in real time. And I think that is where those apps who who already exist now, where they come in. But that then, of course, also needs to happen in an evidence-based way. Yeah. So not just a random app that says it does, it helps someone, but actually research showing that it does help people (laughs) and has (laughs) the research to back it up. And you mentioned in your paper, these ecological momentary interventions, EMIs, that are actually delivered in that in those moments in real time through a smartphone app. I was not familiar with those real-time interventions. What are some promising ones that you've come across? So one of the really exciting developments, I think, is uh, just-in-time adaptive interventions, where the idea would be then that we would intervene at that very moment in time when an individual, for instance, indicates that he or she has an imminent urge to self-injure so that we can really prevent the transition from that urge, which is then theirs to uh, NSSI behavior so that we can prevent that an, an adolescent or, or young adult acts upon uh, NSSI thoughts. So we've talked about some opportunities that real-time monitoring provides, like being able to really understand the short-term course of self-injury thoughts, the urges, the behaviors, by directly observing them with a really good, precise measurement, as you, you mentioned in your paper, and then more focusing on the individual level, as opposed to just the general, like multiple surveys and clumping them together. You can really focus more on the person, the individual. What are some ethical concerns that now opening this black box of researching self-injury in real time, what what are some of the responsibilities and ethical concerns that come with it? I think there are uh, is responsibility that comes with doing these type of studies. That's also why in the paper we actually devote most attention yeah, to that. And I guess it's important that people who participate in these studies are fully aware 
of what information is collected, that there are also representatives of the, of the research population or the sample will be included from the beginning so that they can yeah, really help the research team decide whether the, the research questions make sense and the design and the planning of the study is also practically feasible. Another important responsibility, of course, is to have a safety plan in place that matches participants' needs uh, and then especially concerning yeah, suicide risk. And I think important here is that the individual status as a, as a participant in, in a real-time monitoring study really creates an opportunity for intervention that would otherwise not exist. So in the paper, we also advise against the exclusion of people at risk for suicide, because there is currently also no evidence that indicates that asking people questions about uh, suicidal ideation or, or, or NSSI increases self-injurious thoughts and, and behaviors. That said, of, of course, participants should be made aware that if, for instance, an instance of suicide radiation occurs yeah when the researchers will, will breach confidentiality so in in that way i think that expectation management is really key here participants should of course also be recognized as valued members of the research and be informed about the study results uh, that is something in data that we have that really came out as important where participants indicated that they don't only want to receive a financial incentive, but also really care about the study results. So it's really important that researchers share that with the participants and if possible, even give feedback on people's own, uh, own data. And then I think finally, an important responsibility is to also really train research staff very well who does these type of studies because they, they do lay great responsibility on the researchers' shoulders. So. It's really important that uh, staff knows how to respond to risk situations and that there is also continued mentoring throughout all, all phases of the research. Going back to your comment about the safety concerns and suicidal ideation. So this is real-time monitoring. Someone, say, at midnight could endorse that they are having suicidal thoughts that may accompany or be completely separate from their self-injury. I suspect there's no researcher that's up at midnight just monitoring, sitting around looking at or getting notifications when someone, a participant, completes this and endorses suicidal thoughts. So what does research in those moments do? How do they account for those ethical concerns? A recent consensus statement came out of Dr. Nock and uh, his team where they talked about all these uh, aspects to experts and then of course a researcher will not be up at night at midnight to really see in real time uh, who indicates what uh, and out of, of that study it came out it was important to check the data I think once or twice a day but it's really important that it is then communicated to participants that they know that it does not mean that if they indicate that they are suicidal that then five seconds later, their phone will ring, so to speak. So really um, having the expectations right for people who participate in these studies is really, is really important. Do you think that's a roadblock for some researchers who are trying to get approval through their institutional review board to do research like this, knowing that someone could endorse that they're about to attempt suicide in the middle of the night and there's no immediate assistance for them. And so being a participant in their research project, I would imagine that institution might feel responsible for doing something about it. Yeah, but there are of course different sorts of resources that can be provided. So it's it's not because a researcher will not immediately call the participant that not resources cannot be offered. I know that people, for instance, now are also investigating before and discuss with participants what useful strategies might be when they experience suicidal thoughts. And then in a moment that they indicate this in real life, offer those strategies in real time to them. So we can 
offer support to people if they indicate that that they are suicidal at that moment. And I think that is actually one of the reasons why we should not exclude uh, people who are suicidal, because by participating in these studies, we create opportunities for intervention. So they could get directed to resources in that moment if they were to endorse on the device or on their smartphone app for the research that they say that they're struggling with self-injury, non-suicidally, or suicidal thoughts then if they click that button, maybe resources would pop up? Yeah, that's right. So we can, in the app, direct people to relevant uh, uh, resources, yeah. We do, however, when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury advice, also to have a protocol in place that, that is balanced in a way that it also does not defeat the study purpose. Because, of course, if a participant agrees that they want to be in your study, which is about non-suicidal self-injury, then they may not want to get a pop-up item or additional resources offered every time they then indicate that they're self-injured. So it needs to be, of course, needs to be balanced as well. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your research and some of the research that's out there that has come from these ecological momentary assessment, real-time monitoring studies. So what are some research findings that we would not otherwise have when it comes to understanding non-suicidal self-injury thoughts, urges, and behaviors in real time? I know you published a study just last year in Frontiers Journal. That's a a great question. I think one of the most important findings uh, that we have, thanks to this type of research, is that we know that it takes people uh, on average between 1 and 30 minutes to transition from uh, NSSI thoughts to behavior. And I think this is really important because this implies that there is a window of opportunity there to, to intervene. And in that sense, I think an, an important future research direction, if you will, will be to clarify the importance of, of different situational, emotional, and also cognitive uh, factors at those different stages of the NSSI process. So we really develop a good understanding of what predicts the onset of thoughts and urges, and then what predicts or rather pre- can prevent the subsequent transition to behavior. Previous research has shown that thoughts, urges, and behavior are more likely in a context when people feel, for instance, more negative emotions and less positive emotions. Other studies also indicated that perceived social rejection and conflict increases likelihoods of self-injury, as well as certain cognitions, such as ruminating or uh, self-critical thinking or having low momentary self-efficacy to resist NSSI, which is yeah, the belief people have in their own ability to resist uh, the behavior at that moment. Currently, however, we don't uh, really have a, a good understanding about whether yeah, these different factors are, are, are most relevant in the emergence of thoughts or that transition to behavior. And I think that is really important. For instance, in the study you just referenced, we last year found that when we considered NSSI thoughts, that negative effect itself was no longer predictive of NSSI behavior, which may really suggest that an increase in negative emotions may be more central to the emergence of thoughts rather than that transition uh, to then behavior. So other factors such as uh, self-efficacy to resist NSSI, so whether you you felt at that moment you were able to resist the behavior, were still significant. And I think by differentiating those two processes that that may really, really advance the field, because if we uh, develop a good understanding also of what predicts that transition to behavior, I think that may really be a game changer, because that would then really allow us, what we already talked about uh, previously, to then offer in those moments interventions, because that is when it matters most to intervene. So you're saying that in your study, you found that it's this emotional affect, this intense, uncomfortable emotion is what predicted self-injurious thoughts, 
but not necessarily self-injuring the behavior, but it's someone's perceived ability to refrain from acting on those thoughts that was the determining factor if those thoughts were going to transition to behaviors, not so much just the emotional distress. Yeah, so uh, the emotional distress itself was uh, significant. So 90 minutes later, if people indicated that they felt sad or hopeless, then they were at a higher risk to self-injure 90 minutes later when we asked them again. But when we also controlled for thoughts at that first moment, then that association became non-significant. So the only other variable that was still significant was uh, self-efficacy to resist the behavior, which may suggest, but of course more research is, is needed on this topic, that uh, distress in itself may lead to thoughts or thinking about the behavior, but not necessarily of making that transition and that other factors come in or are at play there, which then decides whether an adolescent will, will transition and, and, and engage in self-injury or will not. And I think it's really important that we differentiate those two stages because by differentiating them, we create yeah, really an, that opportunity to then also intervene. I love this because I think from a clinical perspective, if we can build someone's self-efficacy in their belief in themselves to say, you know what, you, we may have these thoughts, but that doesn't mean we have to act on them and have that ability to say, yes, I know other methods, other strategies I can use to refrain from acting on these thoughts. And that's what's going to determine if I'm going to self-injure, not the fact that I'm emotionally distressed because we all experience emotional distress at times, but it's our ability or our perceived ability to deal with that that matters. Yes, exactly. It's really important. Any other research that has come out about self-injury and real-time monitoring that you'd like to discuss? Well, this is, of course, a very yeah, young area of research. So I think that going forward, still a lot of research yeah, needs to happen. And, and that is actually happening uh, right now. And, and what I think really is really hopeful is that there is within the field a group of especially young researchers or early career researchers who are doing, I think, excellent research in this area. So I think that, there, that we have really reason to be hopeful that some of the opportunities that we discussed earlier today that hopefully in the next yeah, decade or so we will be able to, to yeah, accomplish all of them. I had earlier referenced that 2009 study that Matthew Nock and Mitch Princeton had published that I really had referenced quite a bit in helping educate people about the difference between non-suicidal self-injury and suicide because I think in their study, in real time, when they assessed, I think, 30 adolescents or young adults over the course of 14 days, twice a day, in addition to any other time they had thoughts, feelings, or urges to self-injure or thoughts of suicide, they would record them and found that when someone had thoughts or urges to self-injure, that was accompanied by suicidal thoughts just between 1% to 4% of the time. However, when they had suicidal thoughts as the predominant thought, then they had thoughts or urges to self-injure about 42 to 43% of the time, showing that there's a, a big difference between self-injury, non-suicidal, as well as suicide attempt, and in really understanding what happens in those moments real time rather than just saying okay someone who self-injures at risk for for attempting suicide well there's truth to that but what what's more of the nuances and another study i remember coming across was based on an earlier part of our conversation where someone might come into the office and say well i thought of self-injuring and i did so like it was impulsive but then this this ecological momentary assessment real-time monitoring shows that they had tracked their mood and saw that there was an elevation in in emotional distress over the course of i think a day or 
for hours before and then they self-injured, which subjectively, I suppose, the individual perceived as impulsive, but it was predicted by this increase in emotional distress that the real-time monitoring picked up on that the individual themselves was unaware of. Yeah, there's really, since that study came out of, of Nocum colleagues in 2009, which was really the first study that in the field used this technique, I think a lot of good research has come out. And I think especially more so in, in the last few years because of, of really that increase in, in digital technology, which really makes it more feasible, I guess, or practically feasible to do these type of, of studies. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents, let's say of children who have self-injured? I guess that it's okay if they don't understand and are worried. I think accepting that is, is important. Also adopting yeah, what some, some other people uh, have called respectful curiosity when talking to their son or daughter about self-injury so that they can try to understand what does self-injury mean to them. And although it's probably very normal, a very normal response, but don't ask them to stop the behavior immediately as it is their strategy really to cope with difficulties they are experiencing in life. Yeah, try to understand now what those difficulties are and, and whether there is something you can do to help them. So I think having that line of communication open is really crucial so they know they can talk to you if, if they want. And also try to find a, a good moment to have that first conversation. Don't do that when you or your child is in distress. Given that also adolescence in particular is a time when a, young, when a lot of young people experiment with all sorts of behaviors. Maybe good to keep a close eye on whether the self-injury is sporadic or so whether they engage in the behavior maybe once or twice or, or whether it more has a repetitive nature. And in that case, I would maybe recommend consulting a therapist uh, who has experience in, in working with clients who self-injure sooner than later. So we can really prevent that the behavior, from the behavior from becoming entrenched. Also taking care of yourself, I think that's really important because finding out that your child self-injures can be very distressing uh, to parents. So also making sure you have someone to talk to about your emotions, I think is important. In that way, I really like the metaphor that Dr. Lewis used in, in his podcast, where he talks about this being very similar to being on an airplane that's going through severe weather, where you also need to make sure you first put on your own oxygen mask before helping others. And I think that's a really an important message to hear. Yes. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether other researchers or clinicians? That injury is a behavior that warrants attention in its own right, and that it's a sign that the client is struggling. I also think here making sure that there is a relationship of mutual trust in which a client feels comfortable also talking about their self-injury, I think that's crucial. And then trying to explore together what the positive and negative aspects of self-injury are and not expecting at that stage yet behavior change, but really trying to understand and on, on working on motivation for change. And then also the belief, right, which we talked about, believe in one's ability to then be successful in, in realizing that change. And then therapists can make yeah, what we psychologists call a functional analysis, where they can try to explore uh, what the antecedents and then consequence of the behaviors are, and also uh, discuss alternative strategies that could be used. I think here too, uh, managing expectations is important as self-injury is a behavior that works immediately and is also very powerful. So it's quite unlikely that new strategies in the beginning will will have the same effect. So I think discussing that is also very important and also considering that recovery is a nonlinear process. People will lapse. Uh, it's part of the process. We, for instance, have data showing 
that of first-year college students or college students who enter college, that most of them are after three years, so throughout their academic career, will at some point lapse. So I think normalizing that and talking about what to do when that happens is really key. And then maybe in terms of the research, yeah, I really hope, uh, as I said, that we can take some significant step forward in realizing some of the opportunities that we talked about. Uh, and especially now, I think let's maybe use these unprecedented times to, to address barriers and also requirements for the successful implementation of, of digital tools in the treatment of self-injury. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? For people with lived experience, I'd perhaps like to end with a message of hope. So know that you're not alone. Everyone struggles at time in their life. And for some people, they will engage in self-injury. And for others, it will be something else. So I think we should all accept that it's okay, that we sometimes do not feel well or that we're going through a difficult time. I think it's more important to learn to recognize that and then finding constructive ways of taking care of ourselves. In a way, we are all very good, I think, at taking care of others, but less in practicing self-care. So, uh, yeah, if I talk to students, for instance, who, who suffer from mental health problems, uh, why they, they don't want to seek help, then they don't report uh, logistical or financial concerns. But the most important reason they always give, or most of the time, is that they want to solve it by themselves. But there is, however, no reason why people, I think, should go through difficult times alone. So my, my message would really be to try to be a little bit more gentle uh, to oneself and accept that it's okay to ask for support. This can be a, a good friend, a teacher, a parent or, or a therapist. Today you may be the one needing support and maybe tomorrow it may be a good friend who needs, uh, needs your help and I think that's perfectly perfectly fine. We all matter and also deserve to be loved and helped. And it may sound a bit cliche, but I think it's, uh, it's really too uh, important. Well, thank you for those hopeful recommendations and actually just the, the message of hope here at the end. And more than anything, Dr. Heekins, thank you for taking your time out to share with us some research that's really actively happening and what you're working on and really appreciate your insights here. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wester, for organizing this. I think it's really important that we are having these conversations about self-injury. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.